you've come on a, a, just such a great day. Because um, Elisa Childers is, is about to communicate some, some truth to you. You know, if, if you grew up in the jungles of Borneo, the, the attack on your faith is just to keep anybody from ever getting you there to tell you about Jesus. If you're growing up in North Africa, the attack on your faith is, uh, is religious bondage in Islam and keeping it so scary that no one will ever get to you because it's too scary to get to you. So the attack is fear on your faith. But if you grow up in a culture where there's freedom, then the attack has got to be from somewhere else. And in our culture, it's through intellectualism. We, uh, at my house, we, uh, we're raising, and I, I myself am a, a proud you know, nerd, and if you look on our DVR, there's a whole bunch of stuff from History Channel and Travel Channel and right, Nat Geo. You guys know. And what's happening when we, we teach our children about Jesus here, we teach ourselves and we, we look at it, but then we go home and we've been watching, uh, what's the, the Josh guy? He's looking for Space Alien show. Expedition Unknown, Josh Gates. And he's looking for aliens. And we're all like, well, that's really wild. But he's not looking for aliens because they're, what they're saying is, Maybe aliens is how we got life here on earth. That's, a, that's not the same as we're looking for aliens in Roswell. That's a, we can't figure out how we got here. It can't be anything outside of this box that we've created. So maybe it's aliens. That, and they're stating it like it's a, a fact, and it's happening everywhere your kids are, and it's everywhere you are. And especially if you're in your 20s and your 30s, you probably have a lot of the same questions, and your kids are going to ask these questions of you. Wouldn't it be awesome if we had the equipment to be able to have that conversation. And I don't know, there's a lot of things that church can get involved with, a lot of things that's important for us, but I can't think of anything more critical than us having the conversations with ourselves, contending for the faith in our hearts and contending for the faith of the hearts of our children. That's what this series has been about. I've asked Elisa to come today and to talk about what she, uh, she did this talk with our youth. So if you were here a couple weeks ago, you already know a lot of the answers, so you can, you can look really smart and shout something out if you need to because um, you know it. But I've asked Elisa to come share this stuff because I don't think a lot of your parents know what she was talking about. So you came in here today smarter than your parents in some of these ways, okay? But you're going to leave on equal footing with some great conversations. So Elisa has been, man, we've known a while. She used to be in a, a group called Zoe Girl, if you remember Zoe Girl. Uh, toured all over the world and did amazing, uh, amazing things for the kingdom. But she has spent this part of her life um, not on a big stage, but on God's stage of bringing truth uh, to, to all of our hearts. So would you guys make Elisa welcome this morning? Thank you. Well, I want to, are we on? Okay. I want to thank you all so much for the honor and privilege of getting to talk to your young people. Over the past few Wednesday nights, it's been it's just been awesome talking to them, and it's my prayer, and I'm sure it's your prayer, that they begin to own their own faith and not just borrow yours. And so that's sort of the purpose of what I do, is to help Christian young people encounter some of the objections that they're going to encounter anyway when they go off to college or probably already because internet, and help them to really make that faith their own. And so I'm going to give to you this morning one of the talks I gave them a few weeks ago uh, called God and Science. So before we get into it, we're going to watch a quick little video. Das hier ist mein Sektor. Das hier ist das wichtigste Gerät des Küstenwächters. Das Gerät und das Gerät. Überlebensradar. Mayday, Mayday. Hello, can you hear us? Can you hear us? Can you... Over. We are sinking. We are sinking. Hello? 
This is the German Coast Guard. We are sinking, we're sinking. What are you thinking about? So, <laughs> I love that. So I think we can all agree that words matter, right? It matters what we mean when we use certain words. Because I could use a word and mean one thing, and you could use that same word and mean something entirely different. And we see this all over our culture. And one example of a word like that is the word tolerance. If you think about what the word tolerance actually means, what it originally meant is by nature assumes that you disagree with someone, right? So to tolerate something, by nature, you disagree with it, but you're going to respect the person's right to say it and even defend the person's right to say it. That's what tolerance means. Without the disagreement, the word tolerance isn't even necessary. You would just say agree, right? But in our culture, in the relativistic, pluralistic soup we're swimming in and that your kids are swimming in, tolerance has come to mean something new and different, hasn't it? Tolerance now, according to our culture, means to celebrate and value each and every other belief as equally true. That's what we're getting from our culture. In fact, we're living in a culture that demands tolerance with the new definition. Well, this doesn't work logically. There's a law of logic called the law of non-contradiction. And what the law of non-contradiction states is that two contradictory statements can't both be true at the same time and in the same sense. So if I hold up this remote and I say, this is a remote, and then I say, this is an apple, I've just made two contradictory statements that can't both be true at the same time in the same sense so one of them is wrong. And theoretically, they could both be wrong, but they can't both be right. So that's just logic. We know logically that the new definition of tolerance doesn't work. It's not logical, and it's not even the correct definition. Well, another word that's been getting a bit of a makeover in our culture is the word faith. How many of you have heard of a biologist named Richard Dawkins? Okay, that's good. This is Richard Dawkins. He's a professor of biology. He is a uh, professor at Harvard. And he is in a group that is sometimes called the New Atheists. And the, the thrust of the New Atheists is to bring atheism to the lay level. They write popular level books. They give speeches. They're very charming. They're very charismatic. And they're drawing a lot of kids and adults into atheism. Because I think people used to have this idea that atheists are these mean, horrible, angry people, so they're trying to change the face of atheism, make it attractive to young people, and they're doing a really, really good job. So this is Richard Dawkins' definition of faith, and he's talking about us. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of even perhaps because of the lack of evidence. So how many of you would agree with his definition of the word faith? Nobody. That's really interesting because when I give this talk to kids, usually the typical, kind of the average, is that anywhere from 30 to 50% of Christian kids will agree with his definition. And sometimes I'll even word it a little differently, but 
I think our Christian kids are under the impression that faith means some kind of blind leap. Like, there's no evidence for this, but I'm just going to believe it anyway, and I'm going to try really hard in my heart to believe in Jesus. And then even sometimes, even though there's evidence against it, I'm still going to believe that it's true. But this is not the biblical definition of faith. And often, kids will use the verse from Hebrews, faith is the evidence of things unseen. See, faith is blind. But then I ask them, what is something that you can't see that even evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins would also agree exists. Can any of you think of some things? Just shout them out. Gravity, Gravity, air, love. love. Uh, Yeah, exactly. So he's going to agree that gravity exists. He's going to agree that air exists, even though you can't see it. So the Bible can't be meaning that faith is believing in something with no evidence or even in the fact that there's evidence against. That can't be right. In fact, the Bible proves this true time and time again. If we look at the story of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was the first prophet in the New Testament. This is the guy that baptized Jesus. This is the guy that saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and heard the audible voice of the Father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He witnessed that. But this is before widespread persecution broke out against the church. They were not expecting this. He did not know this was going to happen, so he's sitting in prison because he called Herod out, interestingly, on an issue regarding marriage. And he's sitting in prison. And John the Baptist experiences a profound period of doubt in what he believed was true and what he had proclaimed to the world. So he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus did not send those disciples back and say, John, you should just have faith. John, you shouldn't doubt. John, just believe. He didn't do that. He performed three miracles and he sent his disciples back and said, tell John what you saw. Jesus offered evidence. We see this also from the famous story of doubting Thomas. Although I don't really think Thomas was much of a doubter. I think he was a rational person like you and me. I think he was skeptical of the claim that this guy that they watched die was raised from the dead, that the other disciples were saying. Thomas, we saw Jesus raised from the dead. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to have to see that one for myself, as you would and as I would. He wasn't necessarily doubting. He was just using his reason. And so what did Jesus do? What was his response? Thomas, you should never doubt Thomas, just have faith. No, Jesus offered evidence. Put your fingers in the holes in my hands and my side. It's me. And then people say, yeah, but then Jesus said, you're blessed if you haven't seen and believe. But we have to think about what he's talking about. The entire Christian faith would be based on the eyewitness testimony of these men. They were eyewitnesses. They saw. And they told the story, and we believe Not because of some feeling in our heart, not because we got some goosebumps when we were singing a song, but we believe based on a historical fact that they witnessed and reported. It's not a blind faith. And I think that's one of the knots we have to untangle with Christian kids to begin with, is that this idea that faith is some sort of a blind leap. It's not. If God is real and the Bible is true and Jesus is who he said he is, then every discipline is going to line up with that. Science, philosophy, archaeology, it's all going to line up. 
to truth. So we have to get our definition of faith correct first. Another word that gets a makeover is the word science. So what is science? Somebody in first service came up to me and said that science is organized curiosity. I love that. Nobody can really agree on what the definition of science is, but basically, it's the gathering of evidence. Scientists make a hypothesis, they analyze the evidence, and then they come to a conclusion. But I ask Christian kids sometimes, is science the explanation of all reality? Does it explain everything? Well, this guy sure seemed to think so. This is Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist. And here's what he said. He said, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. All right, now, we're going to put on our philosophical thinking caps, okay? Everybody got your philosophical thinking caps on? All right, let's analyze this statement. What science cannot tell us, Mankind cannot know. Can science tell us that that statement is true? Then we can't know it, right? So that's actually a philosophical presupposition, a preconceived assumption about reality that is not proven by science. And if he's right, then he's wrong. <laughs> Some of you will get that later when you go home. <laughs> So the reason he thinks this, this is uh, the way that many modern scientists think. Now, remember how we talked about scientists gather evidence, and then they what? They analyze it. Analyzing it takes philosophy. Analyzing evidence requires thinking to make connections, inferences, conclusions. That happens in the mind, right? And so what this is, is a worldview called scientific materialism. You might hear it called materialism, uh, naturalism, which is almost interchangeable. There's a slight difference between them. It's very similar. And the basic definition is that nothing exists except matter, its movements, and its modifications. So nothing exists except matter. And this is a very convenient way to do science, because if you don't have to look at anything outside of that, then you can just kind of keep it all neatly contained in a, a nice little box. And this is the worldview that most atheistic scientists in the world today operate, but it hasn't always been that way. And not everybody agrees with this. In fact, this guy says, not so fast. Well, who's this guy? <laughs> this is a Nobel Prize winning biologist, Peter Medawar. So this isn't some guy I found on Answers in Genesis or something like that. This is a Nobel Prize winning biologist. And here's what he says. It's so easy to see the limits of science. It cannot answer the questions of a child. Where am I coming from? What is the meaning of life? Where am I going to? We need to go outside of science. <laughs> so how did we get here? Why do so many scientists hold to materialism? Well, let's take a look at history. Prior to the 17th and 18th centuries, most scientists would view the universe like an open box. So if the universe is this box, they would see that as an open box, that we're not going to necessarily assume that the universe is all there is. So we're going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. 
But then something happened in the 17th, 18th century called the Age of Reason. You might hear it referred to as the Enlightenment. And this was a philosophical movement that basically, I mean, a lot of stuff happened. Our, our, actually, our Declaration of Independence is, is a, an Enlightenment document. But one of the things, one of the thoughts that came to the forefront during the Enlightenment was that we are going to start doing science just based on what we can hear, smell, touch, see, and taste. It's, I mean, we are going to just, with, what can be confirmed empirically with our senses. And some people speculate that this was a reaction to some of the hyper-mysticism of the Middle Ages, which I do not call the Dark Ages, because I think there was a lot of brilliant thought going on in the Dark Ages. I actually have a little section in my library for theology and philosophy from the Middle Ages. It's fascinating. But there was a lot of hyper-mysticism going on, and this was a reaction to this. And so some, some Enlightenment thinkers came along that started to see the universe as a closed box. They closed the box. And they inspired what we now know as modern agnosticism. They inspired a young biologist named Charles Darwin. So a lot of these Enlightenment ideas, so no longer were they going to follow the evidence wherever it leads, they were going to follow it until they get to the closed box, and that's it. There's nothing else. But before the 17th and 18th century, it wasn't this way. Isaac Newton, who discovered gravity, he knew the world had a creator. Even much later, after this point, uh, Einstein was open to there being more than just matter. We don't know exactly what his religious beliefs were. Some people have speculated pantheism, others have speculated deism. We don't know, but he definitely believed that there was more than just matter and had even referenced some kind of a god at some point. So why am I telling you all of this? So if you remember one thing from today, remember this, okay? This is the one thing I want you to take home and remember. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Right? That's why you can have two equally brilliant scientists with the same evidence come to two radically different conclusions. Because to do science requires philosophy. They have to think about it and make their conclusions. Science doesn't say anything scientists do. So next time somebody comes to you and says, hey, science says such and such, whoa, whoa, whoa. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. And that's the most important thing to remember from today. But we're going to go on and look at some evidence that I believe proves that God exists. Now, I want to be clear. The evidence that I'm going to walk through with you is accepted by the, it's the general consensus of science. I'm not bringing some evidence that I'm trying to convince you people believe is true. The actual evidence that I'm going to bring to you is pretty common. It's the common view of even atheist scientists. Now, they're probably not going to come to the same conclusion I do, or that you may, but the evidence is fairly well accepted in the world as the general consensus. So we're going to analyze this after we go through it. And what this evidence is for is that the universe had a beginning. Because a universe having a beginning is a problem for atheists. See, atheists in the past sort of declared that the universe was eternal, we don't have a problem. We don't have to explain how it got here because it's just always been here. But if it can be scientifically proven that the universe had a beginning, then they have a problem. Stephen Hawking recognized this. Did anybody see the movie Theory of Everything with Stephen Hawking? It's an interesting movie if you get a chance to see it. When he discovered some of this evidence we're going to talk about, he was very troubled about it because the implication for the existence of God was so big that he had to actually kind of try to come up with another theory 
that is now the one he holds that still doesn't really disprove the conclusion we're going to come to. But it's a problem for atheist scientists. So we're going to look at it through an acronym called SURGE. And so the first piece of evidence is the second law of thermodynamics. So the second law of thermodynamics says a lot of things, but among them it says that the universe is running out of usable energy. So scientists believe that one day the universe will run out of energy much like a car running out of gas and will die. So if there's a finite amount of energy in the universe, think about it. If the universe had always existed, we would have run out of energy by now. See, there was a finite amount of energy in the beginning, and there's not more energy being created as time goes on. So if the universe was eternal, we would have run out of gas by now, and the universe would be no more. So that's good evidence that the universe had a beginning. You all know this guy, Stephen Hawking, I'm sure. He says this, all the evidence seems to indicate that the universe has not existed forever, but that it had a beginning. And he goes on to say, this is probably the most remarkable discovery of modern cosmology. In fact, the theory that the universe has existed forever is in serious difficulty with the second law of thermodynamics. It indicates that there must have been a beginning, otherwise the universe would be in a state of complete disorder by now. There's a Russian physicist named Alexander Vilenkin, and he said this, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, he's not a Christian. He realizes this is a problem. The universe having a beginning is a problem for atheistic scientists. The second piece of evidence we're going to look through is that the universe is expanding. Now, this has to do with the Big Bang. I know we're Christians. We're not supposed to believe in the Big Bang, right? Well, I believe in the Big Bang. I just know who banged it. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter however old you think the earth is. The Big Bang is the best explanation for Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In one moment, all time, space, and matter exploded into existing, existence out of nothing. Bang. <laughs> so basically what the Big Bang says is that there was an explosion of existence out of nothing, and, and, so it's, and then we know it's expanding. So if you were to watch that like a video backwards, it would all collapse into a singular point and then into nothing. There's another Nobel Prize-winning scientist, a physicist named Arno Pensius, not a Christian. And the reason I say he's not a Christian, the reason I, I've had kids say, why do you tell us they're not Christians? The reason I'm, I'm giving you quotes from well-respected scientists who are not Christians is because I want to give you the best possible evidence that nobody can accuse us of just, you know, finding some biased person. By the way, we all have bias. That's a whole other talk. But... I think if you can find people who are actually hostile to what you believe, their, their testimony means more because they're not trying to prove your point. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's what he said. The best data we have, and he's talking about the Big Bang, are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. He said that in the New York Times in 1978. The next piece of evidence is the radiation from the Big Bang, that physicist I just quoted, he and his partner, Robert Wilson, in 1965, they detected some strange radiation on the antenna in their lab. And what this radiation turned out to be 
was one of the most significant discoveries in the last century. And what it was was light and heat that was left over from the Big Bang explosion. So they found evidence for the Big Bang. The next piece of evidence is great galaxy seeds. When they made that discovery of that radiation, they predicted that if it were true, if that really was radiation left over from the Big Bang, they should be able to find tiny little variations in the heat, tiny little ripples in temperature in that background radiation. So NASA, in 1989, launched a $200 million satellite to see if these ripples or these variations existed. For three years, it collected data, and then they announced that those ripples had been found. The, the NASA project leader on this project, a guy named George Smoot, he said, if you're religious, it's like looking at God. Stephen Hawking said that it was the most important discovery of the century, if not all time. In fact, the ripples that they found were so precise and so exact that that project leader, George Smoot, said, they are the machining marks from the creation of the universe, and he called them the fingerprints of the maker. These are not Christians. The last piece of evidence we're going to look at is Einstein's theory of general relativity, which really bugged him when he first started making these predictions, because he also, this was a problem for, for his worldview. And so he introduced like a fudge factor into his calculations that another mathematician found a few later, years later, and he had to admit that he, he divided by zero. Einstein divided by zero. I mean, you got kids that are in school, you know, you can't, you can't do that. But he didn't want it to be true. And so what the, uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity does is it demands an absolute beginning for time, space, and matter. A little bit later, Edwin Hubble, you know Hubble's telescope, he confirmed Einstein's calculations by observing the red shift in the light from every observable galaxy which proved that galaxies were moving away from us, which really proved all the stuff we're talking about. Because if you think about it, the universe expanding, galaxies moving away, if you watch that backwards, they're all going to come crashing back in on each other and into nothing. So the universe is expanding from a single point in the distant past. This is a guy named Robert Jastrow. He's a leading NASA scientist, also an agnostic. He says, astronomers have now found they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone else would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. He's saying scientific materialism is demonstrably false scientifically. <laughs> it's not a popular view, but I don't know what else to do with the evidence. I think he's right. So why does it matter so much that the universe had a beginning? Why is this such a big problem for atheists? Well, there's a law called the law of causality. And what the law of causality says is that anything that begins to exist must have a cause. 
So if the universe began to exist, it had to be caused by something. It didn't pop into existence from nowhere out of nothing. It did pop into existence out of nothing, but something had to cause that to happen. So let's think for a minute, what kind of thing could cause the universe to explode into existence out of nothing? Well, it would have to be something immaterial, right? It couldn't be made of matter because then matter would have already existed. But it caused matter to exist, so it can't be made of matter, it's immaterial. It would have to be timeless because it created time. If it was in time, time would have already existed and it couldn't have created time. So it had to be immaterial, timeless, it had to be spaceless, right? Outside of space because it created space. Now, if we know that scientifically, time, space, and matter exploded into existence out of nothing at a singular point, we are left with no alternative than it had to have been caused by something timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. That's just science. But let's add to that, it would have to be something unimaginably powerful to create all of this out of nothing. It would have to be personal. Now, why would it have to be personal? Because it requires decision-making. I wish we could do a whole morning just on the fine-tuning of the universe, just the, the variables that are just right, that if they were just this much off, we wouldn't exist. There are so many. So it have to be personal, because only personal beings make decisions. So this is the challenge. This is the challenge I gave your kids. You can conclude that a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, unimaginably powerful, and personal being brought the universe into existing, which happens to sound a lot like the God of the Bible. Or you can believe that nothing did. But it's really that simple. Those are the two choices you have. Nothing caused everything to explode into existence or something that sounds a lot like the God of the Bible did. And that's where this evidence can bring us. This evidence can't necessarily bring us to the Trinity or, or the, the truth of the claims of Jesus, but it's a link in the chain. It's a piece of the puzzle. I like to look at it like an analogy of a car. The Model T was the first mass-produced car. And so imagine you have a mechanic, like we bring a Model T right in here, and a mechanic comes in and he's looking at it, and he's looking at the steering mechanism, how he figures out how that works, and then he figures out how the wheels work and how it's all connected, and the, the frame and the engine, and he figures every, like every just nook and cranny of this Model T, how it works. And then he gets up and exclaims, I have figured out this car, therefore Henry Ford does not exist. Well, that was like a reasoning would say, that's great that you figured all that out, but how did it get there? Interestingly, Charles Darwin didn't have a theory, at least publicly or officially, about the origin of life. That wasn't his thrust. But to me, that's the big question. Where did it come from? How did it get here? 
So we're going to end with uh, just this, this little video that kind of sums it up. And I want to encourage you to, these video, the video that I'm going to show you is made by reasonablefaith.com, by William Lane Craig. They've got a ton of great videos that you can share on Facebook and Twitter, and they really explain some of this stuff in a really concise and easy-to-understand way. So the evidence we've been talking about will be summed up with this video here. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin, or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy, and that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvin Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, proved that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. 
And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. So the journey I've been walking your kids through is we began with some logic, some good thinking, some talk about worldview. We moved into God and science, showing evidence for God's existence. We then moved into the, what's called the moral argument, which is proving that if objective morality exists, God exists. And if uh, God doesn't exist, then objective morality doesn't exist. So two arguments for the existence of God. Then we talked about the Bible last week. If God exists, how might he reveal himself to his creation? We talked about that. And then this coming Wednesday night, we're going to talk about evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if the resurrection is true, if it's an actual event that happened in history, then Christianity is true. And we're going to let the kids break up into small groups and talk about where they're at with this. What do you believe? Who do you say that Jesus is? So I'm really excited to get to do that. Thanks so much for letting me talk with you this morning. I know that's a lot that you just took in. The good news is we recorded it, so you can go back to it. But I also know that even in this room, uh, grown-ups with children, you're struggling with some of these same questions in your own heart. Uh, and in these next few weeks, even on Sundays, we're, we're making time for this because it matters. We're going to talk about resurrection here on Sunday. Uh, I think it's the 19th, whatever, of November, the last Sunday before Thanksgiving. Um, I'm... Uh, next week, William will be here from Togo. The week after that, I'm going to talk about evolution and Christianity. Um, controver- I'm actually, I was hoping Elisa would cover that, but she said no way. She wouldn't touch on that one. So I'm going to, I'm stepping into that in a couple of weeks. Um, here's the, I guess the good news is this. Every one of these links in the chain, they all hold. The anchor holds with them. And so encouraging you to look at that as a parent, encouraging you to look at that as a young person, as a young parent, uh, to not be afraid of Elisa said in first service, when your kids ask these questions, don't just tell them to shut up, that we don't want to talk about that. You know, don't even think about that. Engage. Even if you don't know the answer, say, well, let's talk about that. Let's look into that together and seek truth because you want your kids to have a safe place to question. She was talking about her uh, eight-year-old asking about, how do we know about if Exodus is true? How do we understand? As a parent, we could panic and push them further away, I would encourage you to not do that as a parent. You're contending for not only your own faith, but for the faith of your children. So let's stand and let's pray. The, the words that were, the, I know this was incredibly heady stuff, but it's incredible. I pray that these words, let's, Jesus, let's pray. Jesus, we pray that these words will come alive inside of us today. Uh, as somebody, myself, who is just naturally skeptical, I'm so grateful that you didn't ask me to believe just blindly and that this journey is just awesome because we, every, every step of the way we get to see, wow, you really did create a universe out of nothing, that science hasn't disproved anything that the Bible says. And I'm thankful for that. And this morning for those, Lord, that you might be knocking on the door of our heart, I ask that um, as your spirit gently draws us, Maybe this morning someone in here is having uh, the courage to, to take the next step.
and to engage in a relationship with a personal God and a personal Savior. Thank you for Elisa and her ministry. Uh, I pray that it's not only blessed here, but uh, around the city, around the country, and around the world. Uh, it's a grateful attack on our faith is so intellectual. We need more Elisas out there on the front lines. And we're grateful for the blessing of having her here, right here in our own town, in our own church. Thank you, Jesus, for that. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Guys, thank you for uh, your patience and digging in this morning. I encourage you to go and chew. And on the way home, have some conversations with your kids and see where they are with this. So.